0: To begin this morning, you may open your Bibles again to Psalm chapter 27 where we can look at that fourth verse for a moment before we enter upon a review of church discipline. Church discipline does not sound like a very exciting subject, but if it's found in the Word of God and it's a way in which the Lord Jesus Christ, our King of kings and Lord of lords, desires to be worshipped, then it is an exciting subject. If it's something He wants us to do, then it is a glorious subject, and we want to do it not only reluctantly, or we don't want to do it reluctantly, we want to do it zealously and passionately. May the Lord help us to that end. Psalm 27, in verse 4. Again, I'll read it to you. One thing... Have I desired of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple. Amen. The house of the Lord was obviously the most important thing in David's life, and in our pursuit of wanting to be a lover of God like David was, we will take care of the house of our God. We do not take care of it by giving 3,000 talents of the gold of Ophir out of our private treasury to line the walls of a temple made with stones. We do not give him talents of refined silver to cover those walls. We take care of this house and remove those stones that don't belong here. And we polish the ones that remain. We have a house and a temple to build. May the Lord help us do that. Let us pray. Father in heaven, it is Your Word. These are Your people. It is Your house and temple. The Lord Jesus Christ is the only head and cornerstone of this church. The apostles are the only foundation of it. Therefore, bless the preaching of Your Word that it will satisfy Thee, our Father in Heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the great Apostle and Priest of our profession, and satisfy the Word of God itself. Have mercy upon us now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. David loved the house of the Lord, and I showed you that on Wednesday evening. He prepared with all his might to gather gold, silver, brass, iron, and cedars in abundance. He made arrangements for workmen to be gathered that would do the building for his son Solomon because he loved the house of the Lord. We do not build in the same way because God doesn't dwell in the New Testament in a temple made with hands. He dwells in our hearts and He dwells among us when we come together in a church capacity like this. And so we want to take care of the house of the Lord by reviewing church discipline. And at the end of this sermon, we'll have some church discipline. When we read Numbers chapter 25, we find Israel having engaged in some fornication with the Moabite nation. And the Lord sent a plague among the people, and they began dropping. And most of the people, and it's still true today, most people start there crying. Other people started there praying. Neither does any good when there's something to be done. Prayer is not the thing to do when the Lord's told you to do something. Go do it. But there was one man there and his name was Phinehas. And he saw an Israelite man go grab a Moabite woman and go into a tent in the middle of this weeping, praying service. And they're committing fornication in the middle of that tent. But there was one man who wasn't crying and one man who wasn't praying. It was Phinehas. He grabbed himself a javelin, and it wasn't his normal tool to take to work. He was a priest. But he grabbed himself a javelin and went into that tent, and with sufficient force to take that blunt object... He made shish kebab of that Israelite man and the Moabite woman by running his javelin through them both. Now the Lord God blessed Phinehas and his sons, and his sons' sons, and his sons' sons' sons, and don't get bored with me, and his sons' 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 sons. Don't get bored with me. He blessed him to a thousand generations and said that Phinehas would never lack a man standing before Him because he had zeal for the Lord his God. And so I hope this morning that we will have zeal in our hearts, not only for the little aspect of zeal that we'll practice this morning, but every day of our lives to pray for the house of the Lord, to warn those that are unruly, to comfort the feeble-minded, to support the weak, to exhort those that are cast down, and to help one another. Let's provoke each other to love and to good works. That's how we build this temple. And let's be excited about that prospect. You had read to you by our brother Leon a few moments ago, Joshua chapter 7. The church of God had come into the land of Canaan. They'd crossed the Jordan River because God stacked up the water for them to walk through on dry ground. They approached their first city and it was all walled up. They didn't have engines of war. They may have had some swords and some spears, but they didn't have engines. How were they going to take a walled city? The Lord said, march around that city seven days. I'll take care of it for you. I have one condition for this arrangement. I'll do the fighting. You can just go in and wipe out the city. I want it all burned up. I want every single thing in that city of Jericho destroyed. I don't want you to touch the things of the world as you enter the promised land so they marched around the city and according to god's word the walls fell flat except for one little section where there was seen a red rope hanging out of that window and that was rahab and her father and all her house and she was saved because we needed our savior the lord jesus christ And she is one of the women in the ancestry of our Savior, the prostitute of Jericho. Praise the Lord for His grace. He can use anyone. And He will use anyone. If you will humble yourself before the God of heaven, which she did. Well, they were so excited about the ease with which they took Jericho that they approached the city of Ai and Joshua sent some spies to view the city of Ai. They came back and said, it's just a small city. We only need two or 3,000 men. Why send the whole nation out for a city like that? So the next morning, Joshua sends 3,000 men, and they're defeated by the city of Ai, and 36 men of Israel die. Right. Joshua throws himself on the ground before the Ark of the Covenant and starts moaning, complaining, whining, and griping to the God of heaven, for treating them so poorly. They should have stayed back in the wilderness. Not a good way to talk to the Lord. The Lord appears in Joshua chapter 7 and says, What in the world are you doing? What is this noise coming into my ears? Get up, up on your feet. I'm not the problem here. Israel's the problem. Israel has sinned. They have touched the accursed thing. They have taken it. They have lied about it. And they have hid it among their own stuff. And notice, he didn't say a man. He didn't say a sinner. He said Israel. Right. Because until the body of God identifies and withdraws from the sinner, we're all held guilty together. Right. Amen. Israel hath sinned. You say, but it was just Achan. No, the Word of God says Israel had sinned. You remember that, brethren. This is why we practice church discipline. We're all guilty until we get rid of the guilty party. That's Joshua and the taking of Ai. You know, our brother read to us that they cast lots. They began with the whole nation of several million people and they reduced it to the tribe of Judah. And then they came down through the families until they found Achan. And they had the man by the providence of God on the casting of lots. And Joshua said, son, give God the glory. Confess your sin. And we need to give him a little tiny bit of credit. He confessed his sin. It's pretty hard when you've sent men to your tent and then dug up everything and brought it back. But he confessed his sin to the Lord. And what were the words that you heard read in your ears? Why hast thou troubled Israel? Today the Lord shall trouble thee. And what was the trouble that Achan received that day? The thudding of stones on his body until he died of internal injuries or concussions or whatever. And then he was burned. He and his sons and his daughters and his oxen and his sheep and every single thing he owned was burned up and buried under a pile of stones. That is not a politically correct sermon or a way to deal with problems in a church. But it's what the Bible teaches us. And if we want to build a temple that's pleasing to the Lord, we're going to follow the pattern He's given. Brethren, the temple of the New Testament is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. One local church is called the body of Jesus Christ. We can go to the book of Revelation and see in chapters 2 and 3 that the Lord Jesus Christ walks among His golden candlesticks and He sees whether a church is obedient or whether they are not. There were some that were harboring those that were sinful and they were told to get rid of them lest He come and smite those churches. We want to love the house of God by making it pure. A mark of true churches. Now, there are a number of marks that the Bible gives us that identify true churches from false churches. One of those is that they consistently and aggressively practice church discipline. Now, by that one criterion alone, you reduce the number of churches in America to just a few that practice church discipline. Most churches don't do it. It doesn't make for an exciting service to have people being excluded and turned over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. So it's not very common. Sometimes it involves family members, and oh, they get so upset when one of their family members needs to be put out because they're living wickedly. So in most churches, there is no church discipline. And especially with the matter of forsaking the assembly of the saints. I've given you the statistics before. Let me briefly remind you. In the average Southern Baptist church, and we do, in certain respects, have to claim an ancient relationship to them. But in the average Southern Baptist church, over 30% of their members are what they call non-resident members. Non-resident, you can look this up on the internet very easily, a non-resident member to the average Southern Baptist church means... A member that we no longer know where they live, we have totally lost contact with them. Out of 15.1 million so-called members of Southern Baptist churches in this country, they have 5.8 million non-resident members. We do not know where they live or how to get a hold of them. After that, they have another great chunk they call inactive. And those are ones they know where they live, but they don't come to church or give any money to the church, or do anything that would describe a church member. Of the few that remain, that on a Sunday morning, they get about 40 to 45 percent of their church role. At Sunday night, they get half of that. And on Wednesday evening, they get half of that. You're down to 10 percent of the church's role on a Wednesday evening. Now there's a man in our nation who's made himself famous by writing a book called The Purpose Driven Church, The Purpose Driven Life, Purpose Driven Cartoons, and Purpose Driven Everything is now The Rage. His name is Rick Warren. He's the pastor of a Southern Baptist church in Southern California called Saddleback Community Church. They claim to have 20,000 members in attendance on a given Sunday. Now that's a little bit larger than we are. We recognize that... We're not giving him a whole lot of competition right now for the largest church in America. He gets 20,000 there, but do you know how many names are on his roll? 80,000. Just as I told you about the typical Southern Baptist church, only a few of them show up on a given Sunday. So that when he has 20, 60,000 haven't shown. Now if that's the body of the Lord Jesus Christ, what parts of it do you say made it to church, and what parts stayed at home? Does that mean because only one quarter made it that we have the left arm and shoulder, but the right arm and shoulder and both legs are gone? What kind of a body is that? Every father knows that when he sits down at his table and there's children missing, the family is not whole. And the Lord knows when we sit down together to worship Him and we're not here, the body isn't whole. Now when someone's missing because of work, sickness or they've planned a short vacation and they have every intention of being back with us, the Lord allows that and it doesn't bother Him a bit. Right. We can find that in the New Testament where members of churches were traveling across the Mediterranean Sea and that was a whole lot longer than a one-week vacation. They were gone for months at a time, but their hearts were with them, and guess where most of them were going? It was to go serve churches in other places. Right. Their intentions were wonderful. Brethren, We live in the perilous times of the last days. We are told that in the Bible, where men would have a form of godliness, but deny the authority of God on their lives. And so there are churches with 80,000 members that have only 20,000 present. That is a terrible, terrible disgrace to the name, cause, and glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. They ought to whittle that membership right down to 20,000 if there's only 20,000 that come to their assemblies. And the reason for that is the Bible says, not forsaking the assembly of yourselves together. It's an apostolic tradition that saints should be together. And if they're not together, they're violating the Word of God, and therefore they ought to be put out. Church discipline isn't an option of the New Testament. It's not something that just the better churches do. It's something that every church ought to do. We cannot expect the Lord's blessing on our church unless we practice church discipline. And the blessing that we want is not an increase in numbers. The blessing we want is an increase in faith and grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. We want an increase in the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives and the fruit that He bears, not an increase in numbers. We'll take the numbers when the Lord sends them to us. I can read Acts chapter 2 and verse 47 and it says, The Lord... Added to the church daily, such as should be saved. I'm going to trust Him to add to our church. We're not going to go out and water down the message, nor change the the rules of church discipline in order to increase our numbers. We'll let the Lord do the adding. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and let's make a quick review of this chapter. If you were ever asked, where does it teach church discipline in the Bible? The first place you should go is 1 Corinthians chapter 5. The whole chapter is dedicated to this subject. There are 13 verses in it. Every verse in it relates to church discipline. Let's make ourselves a short review of this chapter. Our brother has already read it in your hearing, and so let me read each verse and comment briefly on it, and we'll proceed through the chapter and see that this is God's ordinance for New Testament churches. Seldom done, though. Seldom done. They go on and on for years at a time. Once in a while, they'll have a purge. They'll say, we need a business meeting and we'll have a purge. We'll take our 80,000 members and we'll whittle it down to 40,000 because at least those other 20,000 have seen us once in the past year. And so they'll whittle it down. But for all the communions in between, it's been a body where three quarters of them have no use for the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why they're not there. That is a disgrace. Amen. Right. That is a sick blight on Christianity in this country. Because it takes some courage to do it, and it reduces your numbers. See, right now, Rick Warren has church number one in this country because he has 80,000 members. Joel Osteen has church number one based on how many show up on Sunday. And so it's a competition. Joel gets more there. Rick has more on the rolls. But you know what? We don't care about either. Right. What we care about is are we all walking... In the Holy Ghost, in faith, righteousness, and peace and joy. Because that's how we're supposed to measure ourselves, not just mere numbers. If we were to add a a couple of rock and roll venues, and some rap venues, and some Hawaiian hula menus, venues or menus, whatever, it doesn't make any difference. You can choose what kind of music you would like. You know, we could increase our numbers. We could build a mega church. We have enough musicians and enough enthusiasm in this church, that if we wanted to offer all the worldly enticements to get people here, we could build this church the way they've built theirs, but we want to build it the way the Lord told us. And we want to take the gold of Ophir and the refined silver, and polish the walls and make it a temple pleasing to Jesus Christ. And if that means a reduction in numbers, so be it. I'm not going to cry because of it being small. I think, I think Noah's church was pretty small. But the Lord was very pleased with Noah's church. Brethren, would you have wanted to be part of his church or part of another church? In 1656, after creation. Right. First Corinthians chapter 5. This is the word of the Lord. Let's humble ourselves before it. You know, the, Joshua had to gather the whole church together in Joshua chapter 7. And tell them the word of the Lord is this. I'm going to cast lots. And I'm going to find out which one of you is a liar and has stolen from Jericho and you're in trouble. And the people would have stood there and they would have been scared. You say, well, if they hadn't done anything wrong, they wouldn't have been scared. Oh, yes. The Bible says, them that sin rebuke before all that others also may fear. It's a, it has a good effect when church discipline takes place. When you discipline a child in a family and you do it in public like it ought to be done, the other children can see it and be reminded that, yes, it is a good idea to obey mom and dad. It's just simple. In the Bible, it was done in public. When, it, when a man was beaten with stripes in the Bible, he was laid down in public and beaten. When capital punishment took place, it was done in public. You know, it would cause young men to be a little sober about the way they treated their parents if they had watched one of their high school classmates stoned to death for rebellion against parents. It'd be a sobering effect. This is the Word of the Lord. We've left all of that. We've sanitized and sterilized everything and quarantined it off so that we cannot see it. You know, I would have liked to have seen the founder of the Crips gang a few days ago receive his lethal injection from the governor of that state. It would sober this nation if we saw some of that. But of course, we're very different today. But Joshua was given the word of the Lord, cast lots. And do you know how sober that service would have been? He didn't need to call for a solemn assembly. All he had to do was say what he was about to do, and it got very solemn. Right. And then as the lot kept falling upon certain families in the tribe of Judah, it got very solemn. And then they found Achan. But here we have a New Testament church, and this is what we want to be, brethren. We are nothing special. We're a bunch of ugly sinners, saved by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and if it were not for His grace, we are totally lost in every sense of the word, not only to God, but to men, because we don't have anything to offer either of them. This is by the grace of God. We are nothing, but if the Bible tells us to do something, let's do it. Amen. And let's do it with zeal, and let's do it with a heart for the glory of God and the purity of His house. 1 Corinthians 5.1 It is reported commonly that there is fornication among you, and such fornication as is not so much as named among the Gentiles that one should have his father's wife. In the church at Corinth, which was a church in a very lascivious and wicked city, which we've dealt with before and I have no time for many details this morning, we had a man sleeping with his father's wife, his stepmother. He's sleeping with her openly, everyone knows about it, and it's reported commonly in the church. These words reported commonly mean that this sin had come to the knowledge of the majority of the church members. Fornication can occur in a church and a member save his place. Now, this is not a recommendation. This is just telling you that God has a process for the judgment of His church. If a young man or a young woman were to commit fornication and the parents were to discover that, and maybe a couple of others knew about it, and that person was confronted with their sin and they were to repent for it, the church at large would not know about it. It would not be reported commonly in the church it would be covered and buried and washed away by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you, God, for your mercy. Because if we were to ever tell the truth to each other, or if God were to drop a screen behind me and show all the thoughts of your heart and the thoughts of your eyes over the past week or month, well, we would be all guilty right. Amen. of numerous sins. And I want you to remember that any evil thoughts you've harbored toward anyone is murder in the sight of God. Amen. So you're all capital offenders, and I am with you. But thanks be to God, there's mercy in the Lord Jesus Christ. However, he has his name and his honor to uphold, so that when it becomes of common report, we have to put such a person out. This man is doing this openly, and the church has done nothing about it. This is fornication, incest, adultery. It falls into several categories of sins that should be put out of a church. Let's go to the second verse. And ye are puffed up and have not rather mourned that he that hath done this deed might be taken away from among you. This church had got puffed up in the grace of God, in the gifts of the Spirit that they had, and were just going to overlook it and just accept them as they were. You know, the signs that now say, you know, well, come to our church. We'll we'll accept you as you are. Come as you are. You know, that that attitude of, we don't have rules here. The attitude that says on billboards, if you come back, we promise not to throw the book at you. Well, see, we're told to throw the book at ourselves. Because the book is God's will for our lives and the will for this church. And these people were puffed up about it. They were puffed up that they were too good. They could allow things like that in their church. I mean, they were in a wicked city. They were in a city comparable to our Las Vegas or our San Francisco or our Key West. They were in a city like that, and so they were puffed up in their pride, and in their accomplishments, and in their spiritual gifts, and they weren't dealing with it. But the Apostle Paul said, you should be mourning. The church should be mourning because you have sin like this in your midst, and you should be praying that he'd be taken away. doesn't even say how he might be taken away. You might be praying for the Lord to take him away, for a man that was that profane to be doing that openly, and still be a member of the church at Corinth. So Paul corrects their attitude in verse 2. Come over to verse 3. For I verily, this is Paul speaking, for I verily as absent in body, but present in spirit, have judged already as though I were present concerning him that hath so done this deed. The apostle in these words says this is not a difficult matter. I do not have to have a fact-finding commission I don't have to dwell on this or pray about it for a great deal of time. See, the Apostle Paul was a cousin of Phinehas. Now, there were a lot of cousins in between, but he was a cousin of Phinehas. He didn't stand around crying over it. Oh, Corinthians, this is so terrible that we've got this going on. What are we going to do? There was no hand-wringing with Paul. There was just fist-balling. Something needed to be done for the integrity of the Lord Jesus Christ and His church. And so he says, though I'm absent in body, I'm there in spirit. I am connected to this event, and I've judged already what ought to be done. Verse 4, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when ye are gathered together, and my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ. We need to stop right there at that fourth verse, and say that the Apostle Paul was redundant in his writing. He he dropped a name twice in the same clauses. Do we need the name dropped twice? We do. Because the Apostle Paul is pointing out something to us from last Sunday's preaching. The head of this church is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We are nothing but His servants. His pastor is nothing but an ambassador from Him. He is the King And all church discipline is done in His name, not in the name of the pastor and not in the name of the church. It's done in His name. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when ye, ye is that plural pronoun in our King James Bibles that tells us it's the whole church coming together. Church discipline and church judgment is not something the pastor does, it's something the church does. The church does it. And they do it in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. What gives a church the authority to say, you may not commune with us anymore? Is it our authority? Is it the pastor's authority? Is it the presbytery's authority? Is it the archbishop's authority? Is it the pope's authority? It's the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the head of our church, and He's the cornerstone of it. He's the foundation. He's the beginning and the end of it. He's the Alpha and the Omega. All authority in the church is of the Lord Jesus Christ. But a church in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, when they are gathered together in a public assembly, obviously implied here, can execute church judgment. They do not do it in private. They do not do it in a small meeting with the elders. They do it in a public assembly where they're all gathered together and they do it in Christ's name and His authority. This is the safeguard for the churches of Jesus Christ. Don't forget it. No pastor can ever exclude you. No group of elders can ever exclude you. It must be the action of the church. And then it must be in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. The only way you can use His name legitimately is to do it according to the Bible where He has written how it ought to be done. So the apostle says that they were to get together and do it with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now this is not miracle working power, but this is the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ stating how His church was to be ruled. Right. Verse 5, what they were to do? To deliver such an one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh that the Spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. The goal of church discipline is not to harm someone. The goal of church discipline is to save that person. And when we turn them over to Satan, it's not that we're casting a spell on them. It's not that we're practicing witchcraft in any way. We are removing them from the hedge that is about the church of Jesus Christ and putting them on the outside where they are vulnerable to the devil to chasten them, chase them, and torment them so that their flesh might be destroyed. And do you know what your flesh is? And I don't mean your body. I mean your old sin nature. That the Spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Our goal is that when Jesus Christ comes, the person we put out would have been purged and purified by the church judgment and by what Satan does to them on the outside in causing them misery and pain, that they would repent and humble themselves and be prepared to meet Jesus Christ. This is the reason we do it. It's not because we're mean. It's not because we're ugly. Well, we're, we're that. But if this isn't why we do it. We do it so that we might save the person and that we might keep the church of Jesus Christ pure. There's two goals in mind. First, it's the glory of God. Second, it's the salvation of the individual. This is why we do it. Verse 6, Your glorying is not good. That glorying is the puffed up attitude of verse 2. They were so puffed up that God had blessed them with His Spirit above other churches. You know, it tells us that in chapter 1. That this church had more spiritual gifts than any other church. And so they were puffed up and glorying in the fact that God was blessing them while they had sin in their midst. Because He was trying them by the Word of God. God will sometimes give you good results for bad means. Because he wants to see if you'll change your means to match the Word of God. Results don't prove anything. The Word of God proves everything. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 6, "...your glorying is not good. Know ye not that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump?" To glory in the fact that you've got 80,000 members, but only 20,000 come to assemblies, that glorying is not good. Who would even want to talk about that fact that you have failed with 60,000 people who came forward and said, I want to be a member of this church. That is a public admission of colossal failure. Your glorying is not good. Know ye not that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump? When you've got 10 pounds of flour, you only need 4 ounces of yeast. Is that right, Brother Mike? When you've got 10 pounds of flour and 10 pounds of water and 4 ounces of yeast, you can make bread. Because a little leaven, which here is yeast, which here is representative of sin, can corrupt the whole lump. Did Achan corrupt the whole lump of five million Israelites? One man. God looked at that whole nation as a sinful nation. Israel hath sinned. The whole lump was corrupted. Because one man in it had sinned, and they had not sought the Lord to find that man And get him out of the camp. It affects the whole lump. And we want to be a pure body for the Lord Jesus Christ. We are His bread. And we want to be a bread that is pure without leaven. And the leaven here is the leaven of malice and wickedness. It's the leaven of sin. A little bit of sin in an otherwise good body affects the whole thing and changes it. Lord, help us. And let us keep that goal before our eyes. Verse 7, purge out therefore the old leaven that ye may be a new lump, as ye are unleavened. For even Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. Now, verse 7 is saying this, You are an unleavened lump. You are an unleavened loaf of bread, because Jesus Christ has washed away all our sins. We are unleavened and have no leaven, because leaven in this passage is describing sin. We are without sin legally because Jesus Christ has washed them all away. But when a member persists in sinning publicly, and it's of common report, and they're sinning against the Lord, not just personal offenses, but they're sinning against the Lord, we have leaven. And Paul is saying, purge out that leaven. Get that out of your lump so that you can be an unleavened church once again. And I will receive you. For even Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. And he jumps further in his comparison. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the Old Testament Passover. For 2,000 years they killed a little lamb, and a year old lamb, and spread its blood on their door as a memory and ate a meal with that lamb and with unleavened bread because God passed through Egypt one night and slew the firstborn in every family. But God spared the Israelites. Because He said, when I come to each of your houses and the angel of the Lord wants to go in and find your oldest child in his bed, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And so it was called the Passover because the God of terror, the God of judgment, the God of death, passed through Israel that night and saw the blood and passed over them. And when we stand before God in a day that is approaching rapidly... And the books are open, and our sins are made known to the universe and to God Himself. He's going to pass over us because the blood of Christ will be over our door. The blood of Christ is over us because Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. We have the fulfillment of the Old Testament Passover in the Lord's Supper and in our relationship with God because of what Jesus has done for us. And because of that, because our sins have been put away, We don't want to bring any back in with public sinning. So purge out the old leaven, Paul says in verse 7, by getting rid of that sinner in your midst so that you can be a new lump with leaven out of it again because you want to be unleavened because Christ has died and put away all our sins. And So we come to verse 8. Therefore, let us keep the feast. And this feast is the New Testament feast of the Lord's Supper. Therefore, let us keep the feast not with old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. This is telling us that when we have the Lord's Supper, we want to do it with the church without publicly known sin. If there is sin that is commonly reported among us, we want to put it out. If it's private, listen, who hasn't sinned privately? But We don't bring that before the Lord, or there wouldn't be a communion service taking place in the world at any time. It's it's sins that are commonly reported that we put out. And so the Apostle says, Therefore, since we are the fulfillment of the Old Testament Passover, since Jesus Christ has died and put away all the leaven, since He wants a new lump without leaven or without sin, therefore, let us keep the feast, the Lord's Supper, not with the old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, no sin, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Is every member... Publicly known for being sincere and truthful, as a general rule, as the the opinion of the majority, is that what they're known for? That's what the Apostle is telling us we want to seek, so that we can give the Lord a new lump without the leaven of sin in it. And so those two verses tell us, in figurative language, told the Corinthians in figurative language, what they were supposed to do. They were to put that sinner outside of their feast. They were to get him out of the communion of the church. They were to get him out of the fellowship of the church. Then we come to verse 9, and Paul explains this a little further. I wrote unto you in an epistle, not to company with fornicators. He had written them another epistle before this. But notice, it's not inspired scripture, is it? Because it wasn't collected along with the other books of the New Testament. But he had written them an epistle and told them, and remember what city they were living in, Corinth. The Vegas, the San Francisco, the Key West, and other cities in our nation of that time. He said, I wrote unto you not to company with fornicators. You Christians, as you conduct your lives in the city of Corinth, which is a wicked city, you stay away from public fornicators. You don't have a right to be living and socializing with them. Because it's a stain in the gospel to show you're approving them by your friendship with them. I wrote to you telling you not to do that. Verse 10, he puts a limit on it, however, and says, But yet not all together with the fornicators of this world, 1 Corinthians 5.10, or with the covetous, or extortioners, or with idolaters, for then must ye needs go out of the world. When I wrote to you, Paul is saying to the church at Corinth, and I told you not to company with fornicators, I didn't mean that you couldn't have any incidental or necessary interaction with them because if I had meant that, then you would have to go out of the world. You would have to go live on an island someplace or out in the wilderness someplace, and I never intended that. You can work beside them because you need a job. You can go to their grocery stores and buy your food because you need something to live on. But don't go socializing with them. Because we don't have anything in common with public fornicators of the city of Corinth. Notice the sins that he lists together. Aren't you offended this morning that he would list fornicators along with covetous? If you've ever desired something that God hasn't given you, then you're equal to the fornicator that was committing incest with his stepmother in the church of Corinth. The Lord doesn't know the difference. If you're bent out of shape, unhappy, complaining, and discontented because you don't have the things that others have, then you are equal to, in the sight of God, an incestuous fornicator. I think you should be offended with verse 10. It says, yet not altogether with the fornicators of this world, or with the covetous, or extortioners, that's using undue power to get someone to agree to your, your desire for them, Whether it's financial extortion, blackmail, or any other sort of high-pressure techniques to get someone to do something they don't want to do, or with idolaters. For then must ye needs go out of the world. Paul said, I never meant you couldn't have anything to do with these kind of sinners, because then you'd have to live like a hermit. I just meant that if there are publicly known fornicators, you shouldn't be socializing with them. But I allow you to have incidental contact with them. Then he comes to verse 11. But now I have written unto you not to keep company, if any man that is called a brother be a fornicator or covetous or an idolater or a railer or a drunkard or an extortioner with such an one know not to eat. Now the apostle goes back and says, I allowed you a measure of freedom with the sinners of this world. you got to work with them. And it's un. It's an unhappy lot sometimes, the sinners that we run into at work. And sometimes it might be so bad you ask for a transfer. You might have to buy from them. You might have to rent from them. The Lord knew that, so He allowed a measure of freedom. But guess what? He withdrew that freedom. He withdrew that freedom when it involves someone that has taken the name of Christ and then ends up sinning like this. That liberty you have with the fornicators of this world, you do not have with a brother that is a fornicator. He is to be shunned. He is to be avoided. He is to be marked and avoided. Now here he sticks in a railer in this list. A railer is someone who calls people names. He rails on them with critical and negative and harmful language. And so he sticks that in and it sticks in a drunkard. If a brother is a drunkard or commits any one of these sins, we're not to have any company with them. Not even the company that we would allow ourselves with the same kind of a sinner in the world. And then he says, With such and one, know not to eat. With such and one. That means with any one that sins like this. The word such is a demonstrative word that means in this manner, or of this character, or of this type. And so we have the word such... And if we take this verse first corinthians five eleven with its word such, and we go over to first Corinthians six nine through eleven we have another list with the word such and if we go to Romans chapter one and if we go to Galatians chapter five, we end up with a master list of around forty five sins that God himself lists as cannot inherit the kingdom of God and are all of the same character. Right. Now you may be able to rank sins you probably have a neat little mechanism in your mind that says very bad and then there are sins that are bad and then there are sins that are not so bad but see god doesn't have a list like that his list puts together things that we don't like to see together we don't like to see fornication along with jesting how can jesting be equal to fornication come on lord I'm pushing the edge of my envelope to even say that as a fool. Right. And I say it as a fool. I hope you tremble before the Word of God. And if in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 3-5, through five, we have foolish talking connected with fornication, that's how God views both of them. Right. Do you know how much you'll be laughing when you meet the Lord Jesus Christ? Then how much laughing should we be doing now for inane reasons? Just jesting and joking and making up stupid things to laugh. The Lord's given us plenty of things to laugh about. But we don't have to make them up with stupid jokes, and so jesting itself falls into a category comparable to fornication in Ephesians chapter 5. And we don't have time to go over the list I've gone over it with you before. And I want you to remember, if you think that I'm shortcutting this sermon, there is a 75 page outline on the website. 75 pages. That deals with church discipline at length so there is no confusion. And it's done by the case study method where I've put together case studies so that you can see illustrations of how to apply church discipline so that we don't get confused. Right, man. Most pastors and churches get confused because some church discipline cases are involve family members, have so many circumstances, it's hard to keep them straight. And so just to avoid the whole thing, let's just quit and not discipline at all. But there's a document that you can look at that will list all the sins And you can also look at the document entitled Forgotten Sins, which no one preaches against anymore. That was verse 11. That once we put a brother out, like this incestuous fornicator at Corinth, we weren't even allowed the contact with him that we would be allowed with sinners of the world that we had to work with, buy from, and rent from. Verse 12, For what have I to do to judge them also that are without? Do not ye judge them that are within? I don't have any judgment that are on those without. You can go ahead and go to work with someone that's a fornicator. I don't have any authority toward them. The authority I have is toward those that are in the church where you are, and you have a responsibility to do something about it. Do not ye judge them that are within. And I want to say this. We are going to meet people that say there isn't really such a thing as church membership because today there is such a revolt against authority That there are many people that don't think there is such a thing as church membership. We're all members of the body of Christ. But there is such a thing as church membership. It is a commitment for us to love and to serve and to be and to meet with one another on a regular basis. And to worship the Lord together. We have obligations toward the people in your pew and they have obligations toward you. But when they say that, you can come right here to 1 Corinthians chapter 5 in this 12th verse. And it says very plainly that there are some within and there are some without. What makes that difference? Church membership does. Church membership, where we're committed to each other. Do not ye judge them that are within. Paul uses the word without and he uses the word within in verse 12, which makes a distinction between being a church member or not being a church member. The reason that there there are a large number, people love these little home churches, where there's no membership obligations. There's no one in authority. You have no duties. You have no responsibilities. You can live any way you like. And it it has affected many churches. They practice open communion. You can float into most churches and practice communion, and nobody there knows what kind of a life you're living, because the whole world of Christianity has watered down everything the Bible teaches, so that there's no obligation or authority anymore. Live any way you want. You love Jesus. That's good enough for us. The love of Jesus is shown very simply. Jesus said, if you love Me, you'll keep My commandments. And so that's how we have to define the terms. Verse 13, But them that are without, God judgeth. Corinthians, you're responsible to judge them that are within. God will take care of those that are without. And here's the concluding sentence, and it starts with, Therefore, the Apostle Paul, the judge in this matter, representing the Lord Jesus Christ, the supreme judge of all, gives this order. Therefore, put away from among yourselves that wicked person. You have an assembly with my spirit, get everyone together, and in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, put that fornicator out. Then you can have communion. And it'll be without the leaven of sin. Turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. I'm going to ask a question for you that I hope you're asking me in your heart. In that list of 45 sins, is not attending the assemblies part of that list of 45 sins? No, it isn't. If you take 1 Corinthians 5, compare it to Romans 1, compare it to 1 Corinthians 6, compare it to Ephesians 5, and compare it to Galatians 5, you get a list of 45 sins, but not one of them is forsaking the assembly. There's another route for adding in forsaking the assembly. We're going to see it right here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. We had this passage read to us just a few moments ago. Verse 6, Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye withdraw yourselves from every brother that walketh disorderly, and not after the tradition which he received of us. Notice, brethren, we command you. This is an apostolic command that ought to be done in churches that when a brother, a single, we've got the church against an individual who is not walking orderly. He's walking disorderly. He's not following the orders of the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ. That church ought to come together again in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not in Paul's name, not in a pastor's name, not in a committee's ruling, but in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, withdraw yourselves from every brother that walketh disorderly, and not after the tradition which he received of us. Now, in this place, there's no list of sins like fornication, drunkard, railer, extortioner, or idolater, like we had in 1 Corinthians 5. Paul just says, our tradition, whatever we apostles practiced... Whatever we apostles taught, that has to be enforced. And we command you to enforce it. And any brother that does not walk according to the apostolic pattern of things is disorderly and you are to withdraw yourself from him. Now if we read through this chapter from verse 6 down to verse 15, what is the sin that is here in this chapter? Not working. Not being a hard worker. Being a busybody. Ending up eating other men's meat and bread instead of working for it himself. That's the whole... Verse 14 takes up the judgment again. Verse 6 starts that We command you to withdraw yourself. Verse 14 says it again. And the verses in between are not working hard enough. Now that's not one of the 45 sins. This is an apostolic pattern. Lazy men God hates in both Testaments. And if this was preached from pulpits and practiced... You wouldn't need a welfare system because the church would require men to work and provide for their families. Do you know what the Bible says? If a man does not provide for his own, especially those of his own household, he has denied the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ and is worse than an infidel. He's worse than a man that goes and joins Muslims. This is the Word of the Lord. Look at verse 7. For yourselves know... How ye ought to follow us, for we behave not ourselves disorderly among you. Paul said, I'm commanding you about a specific aspect of orderliness. When you watched us, when we were in Thessalonica, we worked hard. We gave you a pattern of how the men of your church ought to work. We did not behave ourselves disorderly. Verse 8, Neither did we eat any man's bread for for nothing. We didn't take charity. "...but wrought with labor and travail night and day, that we might not be chargeable to any of you, not because we have not power." Paul said, "...I had the authority to take your bread. I was an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, but to make ourselves an example unto you to follow us. For even when we were with you, this we commanded you, that if any would not work, neither should he eat. For we hear that there are some which walk among you disorderly, working not at all, but are busybodies." Now, them that are such, we command and exhort by our Lord Jesus Christ that with quietness they work and eat their own bread. But ye, brethren, be not weary in well-doing. You, brethren, that are not doing that, but you're working hard and providing for your families, keep up the good actions. You're orderly. This is the word of the Lord. This is how the Bible is rightly divided. We have a chapter in 1 Corinthians 5 that gives us a list by connecting it with other chapters in the Bible that use the same terminology for a list of about 45 sins that God cannot tolerate in a New Testament church. Then we come to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, and it tells us apostolic tradition is good enough as well, where Paul says, We command you, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, get any brother out of the church that doesn't follow our pattern. And the pattern here is simply not working. That's not in the list of 45 things. What else can you think of? Let's just think of a couple that are in the apostolic pattern, but we don't have a specific sin in a list. One is going to be attendance. Where is attendance taught and by what apostle? Paul. By Paul. What book of the Bible? The book of Hebrews. What chapter? 10. 10. What verse? 25. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is. And you know, we live in a generation like that where the manner of many is to come to church whenever they feel like it. 30 times a year. 40 times a year. Once a year on Easter. That is not the apostolic manner. And if you're not doing it the apostles' way, Paul would say, we command you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to withdraw yourselves from such a disorderly brother. If a woman in here were to get her hair too short and try to act like a dyke, we're going to exclude her. If a man in here gets his hair too long and tries to act like a woman, we're going to exclude him. On what basis? Because it's Paul's pattern, because he said a woman ought to have long hair because it's her glory. And a man ought to have short hair because it's a shame for a man to have long hair. Right. So if Paul said that, the Apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, we want to enforce it, Under this chapter, that the tradition of the apostles is sufficient for keeping the church of Jesus Christ pure. We're not going to allow the sexes to be mingled, mixed, and perverted in our church, God helping us. This passage is dealing with just the fact that some men were not working. And it comes to verse 14, it says, If any man obey not our word by this epistle, and what's the word? To work hard and to earn their own bread. If any man obey not our word by this epistle, note that man and have no company with him, that he may be ashamed. Church discipline is to shame someone for their sinfulness. Yet count him not as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. We don't treat them like, we, like the world would treat an enemy. When we meet them, we still pull them aside and say, listen brother, have you repented yet? Are you going to do what's right or not? We don't totally cut them off and treat them like dirt. We treat them like what they are, a brother that is a public sinner. So there has to be a difference drawn to leave them ashamed, but at the same time, we're willing to help them if we see any sign of their recovery. This is the Word of the Lord. Every man with the heart of Phinehas or David, these matters of church discipline are not difficult. If you love the house of the Lord, we, we practice church discipline for two reasons. To keep the church of God pure. So that we don't have achens, And to save that sinning person or persons, that they might be recovered in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ.